Everybody and welcome along to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. You're listening to the silky tones of Edie editor Luke Nichols here at Edie's offices in West Sussex on a very chilly day in December. So, with Christmas just around the corner, the editorial team have reunited here in the studio to bring you a cracker of an episode with some exclusive interviews and discussions about some of the biggest stories from across the green economy. So, coming up on today's show. Tis the season for sharing, and we sit down with the UK General Manager of car sharing service Zipcar to discuss how the sharing economy is helping to drive Britain's low-carbon transport revolution. We will get to that point where the number of car sharers outnumbers car owners. Quite how quickly depends on, on how bold cities are and the plans that they want to take. And then we visit Frankfurt to discuss the future of low-carbon, resource-efficient innovation. How you run a city, how you build a city, how you use a city for innovation and for economic power, it will all change. So yes, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for this, our 16th episode of the show. I'm going to have to stop counting up the total now, I think, because it's safe to say this podcast is no longer new. Um, We've built up a, a fantastic following since our launch back in April or May of this year, um, and it was uh, yeah it's always been real fun to come up here and have a chat with the rest of the team about the world of sustainability but uh, speaking of the editorial team we are a man down Uh, I was hoping to be able to introduce uh, this podcast with uh, a rendition of We Three Kings but uh, it doesn't feel quite as fitting now as there's just two of us here in the studio Um, our reporter George has been stricken with an illness uh, but we are joined by the wise man that is Edie's senior reporter, Matt Mace. Matt, how are you? Very well, thank you. I'd like to point out I've never uh, once seen George around the Christmas period before, so him, uh, I've never seen him or Santa in the same room before, so sure. ma- make of that what you will. Sure, well, um, yeah, I mean, as I say, he's ill. He, uh, he called this morning to, to tell me he's been up all night, um, sweating and, and being generally unwell. On a um, diet of Maryland cookies. This it? is it, yeah, yeah. So his response, I said it sounded like it was uh, food poisoning that he had, and uh, he said he'd eaten a load of Maryland cookies uh, last night, which he thinks may have been the cause. So, um, yes, George isn't with us because he ate too many biscuits. Which is a, um, which is a thing Santa does if there's no mince pies <laughs> out. <laughs> I'm not sure how HR are going to feel about all this. But, uh, yeah, and I suppose I should say, or we should say, that uh, other chocolate chip nibbles are available. Um, anyway, so it's just you and I, Matt. Um, so what's been happening then? What have you been doing? Um, well, I mean, that question's easy to answer with what haven't I been doing recently. I, I seem to have been inundated with, with a backlog of, of interviews and, and rather big um, features and articles. I'm currently in the midst of polishing off a, a nice Trump review almost a month after he, well, he hasn't taken the reins yet, but announced that he would take the reins mm. to see what's happening. So you can look out for that. Is this the 28 days later, please? It is, yes. Yeah. I've, I'm failing to... Uh, to get good at Photoshop to make this look good. So if it, if it looks like I've hand-drawn something and stuck it on the website, it's probably because I have. Yes. So this is, uh, yeah, this is essentially the piece uh, reviewing President-elect uh, Trump's first 28 days or months in the job and the immediate impact it's had, or fallout it's had on the green economy. Um, and 28 days later, I think, is, is quite a fitting title for, for that piece, I think, because, I mean, the political landscape generally has... Um, become slightly sort of apocalyptic, almost a bit scary in 2016, particularly from a a green economy perspective. Um, On the one hand, we've had the great news of the Paris Agreement being signed and coming into force. We've had some real positive low-carbon developments in areas like energy storage, demand response. Um, We've seen some great collaborations formed in areas like renewable energy um, through the RE100 programme and on major issues like... um, food waste, um, other circular economy issues, problems, coffee cups more recently. Um, but then we've had this huge whirlwind, haven't we, of, of uncertainty and general negativity um, brought about by Brexit in the summer. And then, of course, the Donald coming in uh, and also um, the UK's political reshuffle, uh, which led to the abolishment of deck, of course, and the replacement of it with BEIS or BASE, which I'm still not used to saying. Um, 
so yeah, it's been a lot for sustainability professionals to take in, to deal with. Um, it's never an easy world when it comes to sustainability, but um, I think 2016 will certainly go down as one of the more depressing years of our generation or more difficult years. Um, but at risk of leaving listeners with uh, the blues, particularly over Christmas, um, it's worth pointing out that there are some, some real reasons to be positive, I think, about, about the year we've just had. Now, usually at this point, I'd ask George to um, give us the gift of his sustainability success story of the week, but um, decided to take this one on myself and, and go a step further. So I'm heading, setting the bar high for George, if he's listening. Um, probably eating cookies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I actually think that yeah, 2016 has in itself been a sustainability success story. And why do I think that? Well, um, because despite all of that uncertainty that we've had throughout the year, irregardless of irregardless is that a word irrespective of all of that um in 2016 businesses have taken climate action into their own hands and have been proving that the green economy can deliver and clean technologies can work and this isn't just rhetoric so i thought it'd be worth reminding ourselves of the great lengths many organizations have gone to to drive the green economy not just from within their own operations but also through collaborations and industry-wide commitments. So I thought I'd pull out a few highlights of the stories we've written about this year, uh, which will hopefully jog the memory of some of the ED regulars among you. Uh, so this is a long list, Matt, so I hope you still wait by the time I get to the end of it. But I'm waiting with bated breath for this <laughs> one, yeah. You'll probably remember most of these because a lot of them you wrote. Uh, but uh, 2016, it was the year that membership of that RE100 commitment to 100% renewable energy, uh, it grew to 83 of the world's most influential companies. Sainsbury's, United Utilities and Aggregate Industries became the founding partners of the Living Grid, which is a new demand response ecosystem. Nissan revved up for what it called a decade of disruption with that groundbreaking scheme um, that allows consumers to sell energy stored by cars back to the national grid. London unveiled Europe's largest floating solar system just south of the River Thames. Pause to take a breath there. Mars, Ford, Vauxhall... Vacaran, Millicores and Nestle were among some of the companies that hit uh, zero waste landfill milestones uh, within the past year. The plastic bag tax, of course, led to a drop in single-use carrier bags of more than 85% since it was introduced at the end of 2015. The science-based Targets initiative, um, that announced recently that 200 companies have now signed up since that launched. Environmental law firm Client Earth won its high court case against the government recently over its failure to tackle air quality. Uh, the Champions 12.3 coalition um, of leaders launched a new effort to reduce food loss and waste globally. Getting to the end of the list, don't worry, Matt. <laughs> Virgin Media hailed its uh, biggest carbon reduction ever, 6.1% in a year, which is massive for a, a company of that size, thanks to an energy efficiency drive. And just last week, Sainsbury's and Tesco's uh, agreed to completely ban plastic cotton buds to reduce waste. So that list of uh, pledges, initiatives, collaborations, innovations, it goes on. And of course, um, we didn't even mention the Paris Agreement coming into force there, which you know gives us that real global drive to mitigate global warming. So uh, in short, whilst 2016 on the face of it may seem like it was a, a bit of a year of negativity and uncertainty from a green business perspective, I think it has actually been a year of real progression, of perseverance, of innovation and, and ambition. Um, so I think we can stay positive, I think, going into 20, 2017. It's definitely, uh, definitely business-driven, isn't it, from, from, the, from the things you kind of rattled off. I mean, there, there are a few, obviously, the kind of microbeats ban is, is a kind of government incentive, but again, that was the case of businesses knocking on the door and saying, you know, this is what consumers are after. It's, it's a nice little bottom-upper bottom -up approach to it, isn't it, really? Yeah. Considering with these global uncertainties. Yeah. And actually, you know, taking that microbeat example, what's, what has been really good is is the way that even at a kind of, um, yeah, a green policy level, the government hasn't stopped. Um, there have been certain areas where we thought that maybe things would take a back seat. Um, I'm thinking of the carbon budget, mm -hmm. uh, for example, that being agreed and approved. It could have easily been that that was the sort of thing that would have been postponed, put to the bottom of the pile whilst this kind of Brexit uncertainty continues. But... Um, the new department does seem um, very proactive. They do seem quite on board with your agenda already. It hasn't seemed like it's taken too long for them to really bed in. 
Um, so yeah, I think on all fronts there is reason to be positive. There's certainly reason to be uncertain, but I think also there is um, there's more reasons to actually really think about the positive side of this and actually realise that a lot of that is in our hands as sustainability professionals, leaders, not that I am one, but writing about this industry, you really see that when you get people working, the right people working for the right organisations, you can really drive um, positive change. So have I convinced you there, Matt, you're feeling positive going into the year end? 20, 2017 is, is, is the year I'm looking forward to now. You've got me, got me ready. Good. So um, anyway, after that's probably the longest introduction ever on this podcast, but um, let's get on with some interviews then, shall we? Um, so first up, we delve into the sharing economy, which I think is quite fitting for this time of year to be talking about sharing. Um, Zipcar is the world's largest car club network, currently operating in London, Bristol, Oxford, Cambridge and Maidstone, um, and another 50 plus cities across Europe and North America. But what's the impact of car sharing services on the environment? And, and will these things actually see mass adoption? That was what I wanted to find out when I paid a visit to Zipcar's offices to have a chat with their UK general manager, Jonathan Hampson. Now, I should point out that this interview is, in fact, two months old. Um, so I do owe Zipcar a bit of an apology. I've been going on about it probably at the end of most podcast episodes for the last two months, saying, coming up next week, an interview with Zipcar, but it has been put back. Um, it's just that every time that I've uh, planned to release this interview on the podcast, something else has come up which we've needed to get out that week. Um, but this is quite an evergreen interview, I think, and hopefully it's still very relevant and interesting for everyone. So anyway, here's my chats about all things sharing economy with Zipcar's Jonathan Hampson. Here I am then in uh, Wimbledon in southwest London, uh, being kindly invited here to the offices of American car sharing company Zipcar. Uh, I'm joined here in this office by Zipcar's relatively new uh, UK general manager, Jonathan Hampson. Jonathan, thank you very much for having me. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Pleasure to have you. Stuff, so actually, yeah, just on that, I mean, I, I mentioned you were relatively new. How, how long have you been with the company and, and as general manager? So I've, uh, I became general manager in the early summer, in June, but uh, I've actually been with Zipcar going back 10 years now, so I, I've seen a lot of the evolution of car sharing and, and been a large part of it here in the UK. Mm, okay, so you know it quite well. Uh, I do know the sector <laughs> quite well, yes. Good stuff. So um, perhaps the best place to start then, actually, with this chat is, would be if you could just set the scene for us from a business model perspective. Um, I'm sure the majority of our listeners will have heard of Zipcar um, and perhaps even used your service. Um, but for those who aren't aware, could you just explain how Zipcar works here in the UK? Absolutely, yes. So, so Zipcar is the global leader in, in round-trip car sharing. So uh, put very simply, it's, it's an alternative to private car ownership where you join up to Zipcar. Uh, you, it's a very simple uh, process to become a member. Um, uh, you uh, do a three-way call with the DVLA to give your license details and once you're a member uh, you can then go online um, and see where your nearest cars are uh, and say we've got over 1500 vehicles in dedicated bays all around London so uh, the vast majority of Londoners will have a zip car close to, to where they live uh, or where they work uh, and then you can book a car from uh, an hour, a day, whatever kind of trip you have uh, you can book your nearest zip car uh, and then when it comes to uh, the booking itself you turn up to the car swipe your membership card uh, or press unlock on our iPhone app uh, or Android app um, the car will unlock and open recognizing your booking the keys will be in the glove box of the vehicle and then just you use it exactly as a normal car during your booking hmm. At the end of it, you return the car back to its dedicated bay, so you know there's going to be a parking spot for you when you get back, uh, and then reverse that process. Put the keys back in, a, uh, in the glove box, uh, and then lock the car, and you're done with it, and you can forget about it. Perfect. So a simple idea then, I guess. It's um, incredibly simple. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a smarter way to use a car in the city. Yeah, and I actually, I don't know whether or not it's because we were having this chat on, on the way here, I did notice two zip car, um, I noticed two zip car vans actually. Um, so When um, you know about it, you see a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. So a simple idea, but a highly effective idea, um, and, and particularly when you look at it from an environmental perspective. Um, I mean... Do you have any idea how many vehicles are removed from roads here in the UK because people have disposed or deferred purchase of a vehicle after joining a car club um, like Zipcar and, and what effect that has on, on transport emissions? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd say the car sharing sector um, has had in independent studies done on it every year for the last seven years by an organisation called Car Plus, um, who are uh, a body who are promoting uh, responsible car use, and they're funded to do a, an annual study of our members uh, by Transport for London. Uh, and every year for those last seven, they found that somewhere between 11 and 14 cars are taken off the road for every car club car. So that's very simply asking members, um, what was your car situation before you joined a car club and what was your situation after? Uh, and our members and those of other operators are very clearly saying that they are giving up cars to join the service. They're just finding it's, it's an easier way to use a vehicle in London without the hassle. So uh, I, you know, putting that into numbers, I think we can confidently say that over 25,000 vehicles have been taken off the streets of London because of car sharing. So uh, we think we're making a really positive impact on the city and, and some of the challenges that, that exist going on in London at the moment. Yeah, 25,000, big number. Um, and I presume also there's an added environmental benefit from these cars, your vehicles being lower emission generally than standard private cars. Would that be another perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a number of things that, uh, of benefits that come with car sharing. First of all, is, is actually probably bigger than the cars that we operate ourselves, but I'll come back to that, mm. uh, is the modal shift that cre people, um, that's created as people join and, and use a car club. So uh, what the studies have found is they sell cars to join us, but they also use cars less. So if you own a car, you tend to be quite irrational about it. You, you've sunk some money into and invested into this piece of metal that lives outside your house or, or somewhere close, and so you're going to use it for mm. whatever trip. Mm. When you're a member of a car club, you're very much making a rational decision as to am I going to pay to use a car for this trip or actually would walking, cycling, public transport be better for any given trip? So, so that's why um, the evidence is showing that, that members drive less and walk, cycle and take public transport more after joining. So there's a really big environmental effect in, in that modal shift that's created. Mm. And then, as you said, the last one is, is in the types of vehicles that, that we use. And uh, because we only hold on to our vehicles for a year... So we have the very best and most up-to-date vehicle technology. So, so our vehicles typically emit 20% less CO2 per kilometre than, than the average car on the road. So, so that's the final benefit and really a positive one. Wow. And, um, I mean, as an extension of that, are any of your vehicles electric? Um, do you have plans in that area? Yes. Uh, we have 60 plug-in hybrid vehicles at the moment. Okay. So it's, it's a relatively small percentage of our fleet, you know, 3 to 4%. Uh, of our fleet are, are plug-in hybrids um, but, but certainly I think you know, our mission is, is to have less cars on the road uh, and absolutely it makes sense to us to achieve that with the cleanest possible vehicle so, so electric is, is absolutely where we want to be and, and really it's a matter of at what rate uh, the technology and the market allows us to get there so, so we've uh, definitely started down that road so earlier this year uh, we put 50 plug-in hybrid uh, Golf GTEs in partnership with Volkswagen uh, onto the streets of Westminster. So that, that was um, uh, one of the largest steps we've taken in that direction. Um, and certainly that pilot's been a significant success. We Members are loving uh, using the vehicle. We're finding that they're getting used to the electric technology, so the charging points uh, actually very quickly. Um, so, so I think... Um, you know, we're committed down a road of electrification of our fleet mm. uh, and I say we'll keep trying to form partnerships like the one that we did with Volkswagen and the city of Westminster earlier this year uh, to hasten that reality. Mm. And just, I think, I suppose, thinking about Volkswagen a little bit, broadening this chat out for a second then, um, the vehicle market, which we report on from a kind of electrification perspective, emissions perspective, is one that's undergone real sort of seismic change um, uh, over the past year or so and, and at the moment still um, we're now almost a year exactly on from the VW scandal um, which did really shake things up in terms of consumer confidence in the manufacturers but in some respects that did also seem to pave the way um, for an acceleration in the development and uptake of electric vehicles um, the rise and rise of Tesla uh, a few months ago the, you know the Model 3 um, generated I think 15 billion uh, 15 billion dollars in sales for a car that nobody had ever actually seen or driven which itself Dude, was amazing. fascinating um, are you impressed by the shift towards green vehicles in the UK was it something you were expecting or do you think things perhaps still aren't actually changing fast enough 
I think it's definitely steps in the right direction. I think we certainly, as, as we talk to manufacturers about what fleets, are, uh, what cars we're going to put in our fleet, and we've noticed a really big shift today. For, for years, we've been asking for the cleanest possible vehicles. We're very clear the city is our main stakeholder, mm. uh, and the city's been clear with us. They want electric vehicles. So, so we've been keen to deliver that as soon as possible for many years. But, but frankly, uh, the availability um, and the cost of electric vehicles has been prohibitively high. Mm. Um, we do see a real step change now in, in the market in terms of cars and good quality cars that manufacturers are bringing to market. Um, it's, it's a very different ballgame now to when we looked at it even a couple of years ago. Um, equally, we see the cost of these vehicles coming down uh, rapidly. And, and so when manufacturers start to say to us that, that an electric vehicle will both have the same cost as an ICE vehicle and have the same range as an ICE vehicle by 2020. Mm. That's a real game changer for us and, and something we find tremendously exciting. So, so you know, I, I think all steps in the right direction and, and absolutely something that, that we want to see as, uh, as a fleet operator that wants more electric vehicles in our fleet. Um, could it, should it have happened quicker? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's probably taken a while to get to a tipping point that, that we now believe we're on the edge of. Um, uh, but, but as I say, you know, I go back to the point that, that as a fleet operator, we, uh, we're delighted to suddenly have this choice uh, of electric vehicles where, where we didn't even two years ago. Mm. And you mentioned we're on the kind of precipice of this tipping point. Mm-hmm. Therefore, do you kind of envisage a time where Zipcar are, are rolling out much more electric vehicles or ultra-low emission vehicles? Is it something that's kind of built into your strategy to have X amount of electric vehicles or a percentage of your fleet dedicated to electric? Or is that something you're kind of, you're going to sort of follow the market with, if you like? Um, as a sector, and, and certainly Zipcar is, is a major player within the sector, has committed to having uh, 50% of our vehicles being uh, ultra low emission by 2025. So, so you know, we, we're committed to, to a really good proportion of our fleet um, being electric in the near future. I think how far we can go does depend on the technology and the rate at which. Um, it depends on a few things. First of all, the vehicles and the price of the vehicles that come to market. And so we're, we're starting to feel confident uh, that actually there are vehicles that will both be appealing to our members uh, and will be commercially viable. So, so ones that we can run uh, and buy at, at a decent cost. Hmm. Um, so I think that, that's heading in the right direction. The other piece is, is the infrastructure piece. And um, it, it does depend on... Uh, London having the infrastructure needed to support a large-scale electric fleet. Mm. So mm. even when we put in the 50 plug-in hybrids into Westminster earlier this year, it's a real challenge. Putting uh, charging infrastructure onto the streets of, of a city like London um, is difficult. Uh, and so absolutely we've got the intention to grow the number of electric vehicles in our fleet to a really significant degree. Mm. How that will happen and exactly when does rely on other parties yeah. and, and, and how that infrastructure puzzle gets solved. And as I say, it is a puzzle because uh, I think it, it's yet to be decided what the commercial model is behind who's going to provide the infrastructure, mm. how it's going to work. Is it lots and lots of individual charges out on the street or is it going to be uh, a few rapid charges effectively replacing petrol stations mm. as you would think of them today yeah. uh, you know, there's still uh, it's n- still not a clear picture mm. uh, but say where we want to get to is, is very clear mm. okay um, so I guess just stepping background to car clubs then um, the sharing economy uh, as a whole has grown exponentially in, in, in recent years I suppose notably through the likes of Airbnb and in the sort of vehicle or sort of travel transport market Uber um, do you foresee a time when car clubs and car sharing become the mainstream option and how far away are we from a point like that yeah I think Zipcar's mission has uh, and our vision has always been for a, a city where car sharers outnumber car owners you know, that that's when our founders uh, originally set out that's what they wanted to achieve and, and I think where that might have sounded like a dream um, uh, when they first started actually uh, we're starting to see more and more circumstances where you can really imagine that happening I think 
there's a there's a number of things going on. There's both, I guess, a push and a pull. I think with the urbanisation um, uh, effects, where more and more people are coming into our cities, there is a reality that that only a car in the city will be more and more difficult uh, and less and less compelling a proposition. So, so from a uh, will you, people want to own cars in the same way that they have done for many years in the city? Uh, I, I certainly think it would be less appealing. Equally, I think the car will be more and more regulated in the city. So as a coping mechanism, cities will have to come out uh, with uh, and increase the cost of owning cars in the city. So, so I, I think that will be one side of, of the coin. The other will be uh, the increasing amount of mobility services that are out there, of, of the growth of services like ours means that people will feel able to, to do without private cars in the city. Um, so, so I think for several reasons, absolutely, we will get to that point where uh, the number of car sharers outnumbers car owners. Mm. Putting a timeline on it, I think, within the next 10 years is, uh, is certainly very likely. Um, quite how quickly depends on, on how bold cities are in the plans that they want to take. Mm. Um, so you know, certainly cities can hasten that reality by some of the policy decisions that they make. Mm. And, and what about business here, the role of business? Um, this is a question that came to me while you were discussing that actually because I was just scrolling through my phone and found a uh, press release uh, that was sent through to us this morning um, from a business park that has been trialling kind of car sharing schemes among the businesses within it. And it's a release that's essentially talking about the environmental benefits that are already being seen through that. Do you think there's a big role for business here? Do you see this as a potential way forward for businesses in cities um, to get on board with the car sharing thing and perhaps sort of drive a bit more behaviour change from within? And then I suppose a question from that, sorry, this is a long question, no. but a question from that is then, is it, where does Zipcar come in there? Could there be commercial opportunities for Zipcar? Yes, yeah, so I, I think... Uh, certainly, Zipcar for Business, which is our business product, mm. is uh, is one of the fastest growing elements of our business. When Zipcar first started, there's no doubt about it, it was it was a consumer proposition, and, and that was who we were targeting. But I, I think it's becoming increasingly clear to us that um, that actually businesses, uh, and particularly SMEs and smaller businesses, face many of the same challenges. You know, does it make sense for them to own a fleet of pool cars or, or their own individual car? Or actually, if they only have occasional car use, if our vehicles are out there on the streets to use, whether they've got a delivery to make uh, or they need to go and see a client, actually that is a much more cost-effective, flexible way to use a fleet. Um, so so we, we certainly think that, that businesses will form a large part of our future, and indeed we'll need to do so, because if the cars are to be well used uh, on the working week as well as at the weekend, we need to have um, a good mix of users uh, in our membership base so so it's a very important segment to us and one we think will continue to grow and uh, so uh, small um, and medium sized businesses are probably where we've seen the greatest adoption of that so far but either, equally there's some larger businesses using us and local authorities using us it's a really great model where uh, they use our vehicles during the working week uh, so I'm talking about uh, the London Borough of Croydon is a good example of this um, make the cars available to their residents in the evenings and weekend. It's a really good model about killing two birds with one stone, being efficient in their fleet usage whilst providing something to their residents as well in the evenings and weekends. So, so we see, uh, we certainly predict more of that kind of thing happening. Hmm. And your predicted rise in the uptake of um, car sharing, car clubs, um, is a really interesting point actually because. A few months ago, uh, I was up at an event in Leeds, uh, which was based on the theme of disruptive innovation. Um, and speaking at that event was Tesla's UK director, Georg L. Um, don't want to put you on the spot here, but I suppose I am. But um, he, he, he gave a fantastic talk, Georg did, on, on his company's rise and the recent changes within the broader EV market. But during the Q&A session, someone put the concept of car clubs to him. And he said this, he said there's a lot of conversation about whether or not people are actually going to buy cars in the future or if we'll all be members of car clubs. I'm firmly of the opinion that car clubs are just an intermediate fix that will disappear and never see mass adoption. They're very inconvenient. Um, what, what do you make of that? Uh, I mean, surely you must disagree that car clubs are never really going to see any sort of mass adoption? Uh, I, I do disagree with that. I, I think... Um Autonomous vehicles, which is which is really what he was talking about, and, and how that market is going to look, 
Tesla have a very clear view that, that they think in the future uh, lots and lots of people are going to buy autonomous vehicles uh, and and actually your autonomous vehicle would be able to be used by other people, would be able to run errands for you during the day, but it's going to be private consumers that are going to own those autonomous vehicles. Mm. Uh, there is an alternative school of thought which uh, John Zimmer for Lyft put forward, which is, again, there will be autonomous vehicles, but, but actually uh, they won't be owned by um, private consumers. They will be owned by fleet operators. So instead of having to everyone own their own vehicles, you can, uh, say, use a, a Zipcar autonomous vehicle uh, and uh, that will get you from point A to point B. So, so I, I think there's different schools of thought as to who it is that's going to be the operator of autonomous vehicles going forward. Uh, we, we would certainly uh, subscribe to John Zimmer's view of the future rather than, uh, rather than Tesla's. Uh, so we think that, that business models will start to converge. So when autonomous vehicles come, a car sharing car is the same as a taxi, is the same as ride hailing. They all start to converge down. Mm. Um, and then it becomes, so who is it that's going to be delivering those autonomous vehicles? Mm. And if you look at where Zipcar's competencies are, we are effectively a large-scale fleet operator. We know how to run and manage fleets. And we think there's a really big role in the future for that with autonomous vehicles. And so that's how we see our future and how autonomous vehicles fits into that, rather than Tesla, who would rather think that everyone will continue to own their own vehicles. Mm. And um, they are, I suppose, autonomous vehicles soon to become a reality. Tesla, obviously, we've discussed, Google, Volvo getting on board. Um, So the ambition for Zipcar there then, um, will there in the future be Zipcars that we could um, order on our smartphone that will drive to us with nobody in it, um, ready for us to drive off and have no hands? I, I think uh, that is a perfectly reasonable uh, prediction and, and one that I, I think is is certainly where we see the sector going. I, I think the, the main question for many people of autonomous vehicles is, is when do you get quite to that point? So, mm. um, but, but yes, I think certainly we see ourselves as, as an owner and operator of autonomous vehicles and in the same way that uh, you book a zip car at the moment. Uh, absolutely, we can imagine you uh, beckoning a, a fully autonomous zip car in the future. Absolutely. Hmm. And so, I mean, this, all, I guess, the selling point of autonomous vehicles, one of the primary selling points is the convenience aspect, which I suppose Georg was ultimately getting towards yeah. um, in that point he was making. Um, we received a press release from Zipcar recently about this free floating car sharing service that you've launched. Can you explain how that service works? Yes, so uh, in the past month we've launched our first uh, free floating service in the city of Brussels. So uh, I guess where uh, our existing round trip service operates from dedicated bays, you uh, reserve a car in advance for the time period that you're going to need it and then drop it back in the dedicated bay. Free floating is, is, uh, is a different model where instead of having dedicated bays, the cars are effectively, as, as the uh, name suggests, they are floating all over the city. So you would go onto an app, uh, you would see where your nearest zip car is, uh, and then rather than pre-booking it, you walk up to that car, tap your card, and you can use it spontaneously. So it's much more suited towards shorter term, spontaneous usage. Uh, and obviously the other big difference about it is rather than round trip where you need to return the car to where you found it, you can just pick the car up from wherever you find it, and drop it off in any other uh, legal parking bay as decided by the city. So uh, it allows uh, A to B driving um, for spontaneous short-term usage. So mm. it's a variant of the model and one that uh, we think will be very popular and is already doing really nicely in Brussels. Is it? Yeah, I was going to ask, big uptake for that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we're, we're really pleased with the start that we've made in Brussels. And uh, free-floating uh, car sharing is, has proved to be successful in a number of European and, and increasingly North American cities. Mm. Uh, and certainly our experience so far of it in, in Brussels is uh, it's going down really well. So we're really pleased. So something you would envisage in the UK? Yeah, I think our, our general approach to, uh, to variants and the increasing variants of, of car sharing models is, is Zipcar will develop uh, a range of models from... Uh, round trip, which is our, our bread and butter, to uh, one way, which we already offer in North America. So again, it's a fixed point A uh, to a fixed point B, 
so we already offer that in a number of our North American cities, to free floating that we've just launched in, in Brussels. Uh, and we will tailor uh, whatever uh, a city wants to, to what we deliver. So if, um, and so the reason we launched floating in Brussels was because the city of Brussels said that's the version of car sharing that they wanted and they wanted to pursue. So, so that's what we delivered. In the case of London, uh, obviously round strip is, is what London's had for many years. Um, if London decides that it wants free floating car sharing, uh, then absolutely we will uh, we will deliver it. And, and I think um, obviously the complexity of London is is it's not one authority saying that they want to do it. You need to convince uh, all 33 or however many boroughs that you would launch the service in to, to do just that. So, so London is a complex city to launch free floating in. Mm. Um, but but absolutely, if London decides it wants it, the, the zip car would very much uh, very much be in a position to deliver it, and we will. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure that if, if and when it does launch there, I'll, I'll be among the first people to, to try that out. So, um, Jonathan, thank you very much. Good luck uh, with the future here at Zipcar. And, yeah, thanks very much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you. Great stuff there from Jonathan. And, uh, yeah, very interesting to hear uh, about that difference in opinion between Zipcar and Tesla on, on the future of car clubs and that kind of car sharing network um, in Britain. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Right, now, uh, on to our second interview, or interviews, I think it is, because, uh, Matt, you've been busy in the world of green innovation, haven't you? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say I've been jet-setting, but I, I touched down in Frankfurt uh, a few weeks ago for um, the Climate Innovation Summit, hosted by Climate Kick, which is Europe's largest public-private innovation partnership, uh, which aims to build climate resilience around these kind of new technologies and, and business models and whatnot. Um, it was a fascinating event. Um, got to speak with a lot, of, a lot of good people there. Um, it had some big industry heavyweights, lots of Rolls Royce, Carlsberg, which we managed to run an oh, article yeah, yeah. about there. Um, so it wasn't just a case of this is a load of startups and entrepreneurs meeting under the same roof. Mm. Although they did have a, a kind of innovation competition and what not. But I got a chance to speak to two of the speakers there. Um, Tom Delay, obviously from the Carbon Trust. In fact. He's, uh, this is now his second appearance on this podcast. He's, yeah. he's one away from a hat-trick ball. Going to have um, to give him his own segment on the show or something. <laughs> exactly. And um, it's worth noting as well that after speaking to him via phone at Marrakesh, I, I, that was the sole reason I went out to Frankfurt, was to deliver a high-quality and crisp audio file this time. Yeah, um, so better-quality audio. Which is exactly. Good. And, you know, I had a, a chance to speak to him just about the kind of global sphere in general in regards to the Paris Agreement, Brexit, Trump, the stuff we've touched on and how this is going to um, affect the rollout of these new innovative models. And I also um, was privileged, actually, because he's an extremely interesting person. Not that Tom Delay's not. Tom is extremely <laughs> interesting. Um, but to speak to Professor John Schullenluber, and apologies in advance to any <laughs> German speakers if I butchered that. But One more go. Uh, John Schullenluber, okay, no, who good. is chair of uh, the Climate Kick and... Um, you know, he's the kind of person you could sit in a room to all day and just, you know, uh, listen to him kind of list off all these kind of key milestone charts, graphs mm. that have shown how um, climate change has evolved over the years. Mm. And he's a very firm believer in um, concepts such as energy storage and how and carbon capture and how that's going to drive mm -hmm. this kind of low carbon transition. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, it sounds like it's your dream come true being here at the Climate Innovation Summit. It, it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, here's your chat with um, representatives from the Carbon Trust and Climate Kick. We'll play them back to back. So uh, here they are in full. So I've been flown out to Frankfurt for the um, Climate Innovation Summit. Um, it's been hosted by uh, Climate Kick. And we've just sat in on the morning panel session. Had the likes of Patricia Espinosa speaking about striving towards this well below two degrees world. And I've actually uh, managed to grab a bit of time with, and forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, but Professor John uh, Schulenhuber. Schulenhuber. <laughs> okay. Well, That's clearly my German needs uh, <laughs> clearly my German needs some uh, some brushing up. He is the chairman of uh, Climate Kick. So, John, thank you very much for agreeing to have this chat. I thought if I could just uh, open up. Um, you were kind of painting a, a scientific picture of, of how we've got to the point where we are and where we need to go. Um, in regards to our listeners who are kind of very business orientated, um, where, do you, where do you see them having to really turn to? Um, do they have to band together? Do they have to turn to government? How do they begin to um, thrive in this, in this new transitional world? 
I mean, we might actually, in a rough way, uh, subdivide uh, the economy into manufacturers, investors, and consumers. Eh? And for the manufacturers, you know, this climate challenge is sort of annoying, clearly. If you're a steel producer, a car maker, and so on, you would rather wish away the climate challenge. You would say, this is all a hoax. Eh? and uh, the physicists got it wrong, as we always do, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so let's just ignore it, uh, and let's do business as usual. And with the Paris Agreement, this is going to change, because all the national decarbonization plans will have to be revised, and actually you cannot just build uh, cities from steel and cement the way we did it for 100 years now. Huh? So, and cars will have to be electric cars or hydrogen cars. It is like that. If you just uh, add one and one and one, it means free in the end, and that means manufacturers have to transform. So they, in a way, are uh, not very happy about the development. On the other hand, they have excellent engineers and excellent systems analysts and so on. I'm sure we will live up to the challenge, yeah? so what's the one thing? But it's uh, a major transformation. Now the second part is financial capital and so on, investors. And for them, it's easy. They go where they expect a good return on their money, on investment, and where the risk is sort of uh, something which is not uh, completely incalculable. Eh? So, and third dimension may even be Let's do something reasonable, eh? not just make money in a safe way, but also contribute to the, the better development of, of humankind. Why not? Eh? And for them, uh, we just did a major conference with uh, institutional investors in Berlin uh, just a few months ago, really at the top level uh, of uh, international banks and uh, big insurance industry. And they have seen the light, actually. We simply watch but the market value of coal, for example, in the United States is just imploding. Yeah? I mean, now with, I think, $40 billion, you could buy up the entire coal industry in the United States and just put it to rest. Yeah? So Bill Gates could do it yeah, in a folly. Yeah? And uh, perhaps he will do it. Yeah? We never know. Or Superman or who else. So it's an interesting situation, and if you are an investor and you want to be in business also in five years from now, you just have to watch the trends, the mega trends in the system. And you have on the one hand this political pressure to decarbonize, so there will be no private investors for coal industry in the future, I'm absolutely sure. And you have also the grassroots, the bottom-up pressure from civil society, divestment movement, many other things. Uh, and between these two pressures, uh, from above and below, investors have to simply find the right way for sustainable investment, uh, sustainable in terms of their own business. And, and they are now largely reorientating themselves. Uh, it, it's absolutely clear. It's maybe just a vanguard of 5 to 10%, but the rest will follow. Uh, I don't see any private equity being invested in things like coal mines uh, in, in, in the coming decades. Uh, and it will hit all the nuclear power and, 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 and gas and so on. So I see a massive shift within the investment world towards renewable energy efficiency, circular economy, and what have you, all these things. Finally, the consumers. Uh, for the consumers, it's the most difficult decision, actually, to make. Uh, if you are a lower middle class family, I mean, the only thing that counts is really the bill uh, you have to pay in the end uh, for your electricity, whatever. Uh. And then you have to hear very good reasons why you should pay maybe higher costs, uh, higher prices, higher bills for a while at least, because in the end, of course, the costs will come down with the transition to renewable, more energy efficiency, and so on. So this is the field where political psychology plays a big role. Huh? And for example, in Germany, it worked with the energy transition, because people were so opposed to nuclear power, and they are so in favor of uh, climate action, 
but you still have 80 to 90% in all polls who say, yes, even if it costs more to me, yeah? even if I have to pay 100 euro more a year for my energy and so on, I'll do it because we want to be part of saving the world. And so these three factors are important. You need regulations for the manufacturing industry, you need good narratives for the investors' world, and you need the moral imperative for the ordinary people in there, because most of our people are decent people. And um, you mentioned <coughs> the kind of transition uh, and the availability of funds that will move away from these fossil fuel-backed um, areas, and you know presumably they're going to come towards these more clean, clean tech um, mm-hmm. areas. We're at the Climate Innovation Summit, so it seems only fair I ask you about um, innovation in general. And I know you mentioned it on the panel, but <clears throat> your kind of the innovations that you think will make this difference. And, and you said you, we had kind of three decades to mm. to turn, you know, the the damage we've done around. And what kind of innovations will be at the heart of those three decades? Mm. I think one of the really hot fields is is urban planning and urbanization development. I mean the way you build the city, from what materials, uh, the way you organize mobility within a city, uh, the way you deliver consumption goods and so on, uh, so retailing, for example, the way you bring together people for cultural events and and so on, uh, how you run a city, how you build a city, how you use a city for innovation uh, and for economic power, it will all change, actually. And this is one of our big focal points, actually. So the other thing, clearly, is production, that you can have closed loops regarding carbon, that will be in the end. I think the heavy industry will only survive producing glass, chemical steel, and so on, if you sort of operate the carbon you use in a closed cycle, really, in the end. This is one of the things we look at and financial products, which are uh, innovative, very, very important. I mean, you have heard certainly from the so-called infrastructure gap, eh? but on the one hand, the infrastructures in the developed world, let alone the not existing infrastructure in the developing world, eh? the infrastructure in our world is decaying. eh? Bridges were built in the 1960s from poor concrete, and you have to replace them now. Where is the money? There's no public money for that. But the world is awash with private equity, eh? which is banked and stored in Panama, wherever, eh? and people rather buy stamp collections and uh, vintage cars than to invest it. So I think one of the biggest innovation of all would be to set up public-private transformation funds, big ones, like the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Norway, but in a new way where you really invest into breakthrough innovation, disruptive innovation, but, and this is the innovation, where you would de-risk the investment of private uh, equity. Because what they are afraid of, if they have billions and billions to invest, they are not so much concerned about the return on investment, because if you would get today 3 or 4% of return, it would be already excellent. But they are afraid of the risks, uh, investing into breakthrough technologies. And if some de-risking for public funds uh, would support this, uh, then I think it would completely change the investment dynamics. Uh. And um, <clears throat> I suppose uh, just my final question would be, um, you're, you've got a, a very kind of scientific background, a physicist. You've, you've kind of done a lot of research into this. Um, I think, you know, you kind of figured out we're on this tipping point type thing um i think for a lot of our um, listeners who have to kind of feed this scientific information find out how that affects their business and then relate that to their boardroom to get funding for these low carbon initiatives it can be quite a minefield to navigate so in in your experience how do you kind of take these scientific findings and translate them in a way that kind of speaks to business and finance i mean i, I do it if I can, in a similar way as I did it today, you come with, come with, uh, come along with a few powerful slides, and try to make it as entertaining as possible, and nevertheless do not hide the substance uh, behind it. And it seems to work in general. As I gave similar presentations to governing boards of big companies, 
or to sitting presidents of countries and so on. They generally, generally get it. I just did a, sim, a similar uh, sort of uh, input to the Japanese committee that is sort of uh, devising now the long-term decarbonization strategy for the country. This is the third biggest economy in the world. Huh? And I think they get it. I mean, what you have to tell business is, 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 is really two things. On the one hand, if we are able to get our acts together, like in Paris and Marrakesh and so on, there will be regulations and there will be laws in the end, there will be new ways of doing business enforced simply yeah? for the common good, uh, for the common good of society, unless we all decay into chaos and the, the world will be run by Donald Trumps and the like. Yeah? Then, of course, I will just go to... Uh, uh, a lonely island in the South Pacific or something like that. Uh, but if rationality prevails, and I am convinced it will, uh, when there will be new frameworks for doing business. And better watch out for it and try to be part of the vanguard and not those who tread their feet and so on, drag their feet. Uh, the other thing is, which I did not mention today and often do not mention, but I have to mention it here, if we do not get the plot and if we do not deliver on Paris, businesses will be impacted all over the world by global warming. Yeah? We are currently doing a study at the Potsdam Institute how global chains of, uh, of, of, of production actually, yeah? say, electronic hardware from Japan, which is then delivered to the United States, uh, uh, will be affected by global warming. And there is a very interesting lesson to be learned. A few years ago, we had major floods in Thailand, Bangkok, and this actually meant that there was no supply of basic elements for electronic hardware, which was reprocessed in Japan. So the whole market broke down. Uh, and in the end, there was a loss of 20% or so on, which impacted even the United States and so on. Uh. The same with agriculture, for example. Uh. So if we do not read the science on the wall, when a lot of sectors will be so negatively affected by climate change, unavoided climate change, that they will be, have a very hard time to survive. Uh. So rather than being part of the sort of vanishing and decaying business, you should be part of the rising business actually, the business of the future. So I think it's a no-brainer question. Okay, John, that's, um, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm wary that your, your coffee that's uh, sitting next to you is getting cold, so um, okay. <laughs> uh, again, thank you very much for your time, and it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, um, we moved on later in the day now. Um, the venue is, is packed, so I've managed to uh, head to a quiet room with the CEO of the Carbon Trust, Tom Delay. Tom, thank you very much for agreeing to, to have pleasure. this chat. I realise and where you have a flight to catch, so we'll try and keep this um, brief. But, but while I've got you here, I suppose... Um, one of the big things our, our listeners who are kind of in the business sphere will know is the fact that the Paris Agreement is now is now come into force. So a nice broad question to open up with, I suppose, for for that kind of industry, for the business industry, what's what's changed now that's come in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Paris Agreement means a lot to business in terms of it providing a canvas for action, but actually doesn't give business a great steer as to what that action should be. Um, so businesses will still, as before, be looking at, you know, is there a risk or an opportunity in the transition to a low-carbon future? Um, and how they can, as a business, capture the opportunity and minimise the risk. Um, I think there are a number of things that businesses are now pushing for. And part of uh, this is ensuring that what they do today is aligned with not just the Paris Agreement today, but also the future of the Paris Agreement, i.e. the two-degree uh, targets. And a lot of businesses are working on what we call science-based targets, and that is the kind of, yes, if we're going to create a two-degree world, um, what's that going to mean in terms of carbon emissions? What do individual sectors need to do to ensure that that is the global carbon budget? And therefore, what does a business within that sector need to do to ensure that the action it takes today is consistent with that move towards a long-term target? It's a really ambitious agenda. 
leading businesses signed up in Paris to that agenda, made that commitment. And I think two things have happened since. One, more businesses have piled in saying, look, we understand the logic of this. Being able to demonstrate that what we're doing is uh, consistent with a long-term target is really important. But secondly, a lot of businesses are starting to actually try and do it, and they're finding it more difficult than they thought. Um, no great surprise there. They're not surprised. But if you think about it, you know, an organisation sitting here trying to think, how does my medium to long-term uh, effort in the climate change sphere to decarbonise, to achieve savings, to produce lower carbon products and services, all these things come together. How do I actually map that against what the sector is going to be doing in terms of a long-term target? So as the Carbon Trust, we're working with a lot of businesses right now helping them come to terms with science-based targets and what it means for them. Um, depending on their sector, the approaches are quite different in many cases, but they also need to be consistent. And so there are a number of people working around the world on science-based targets, making them real. So I think the difference between Paris and now is that now they're trying to actually make them real. In Paris, it was just a sign of commitment. Okay, and in your um, in your speech that you've just done, you, you mentioned the kind of importance of, of collaboration. Yeah. Um, is there still a case that a lot of, it's very sector by sector, but for some where it is more competitive, perhaps retail, perhaps car manufacturing, where there's that competitive edge to always be ahead, is collaboration being damaged by that? And, and also, is that a bit kind of skewed their view that they need to be ahead of the edge right now, whereas if they carry on that kind of business usual approach, they won't be one of the leading businesses later on down the line? Yeah. I mean... Uh we would advocate that before you decide whether you're going to collaborate, you've got to decide whether you need to compete. Um, there are ways of looking at uh, your business in terms of its competitive space, in terms of other sectors that you feed, either because they are your customer or maybe they're your supply chain, and how the whole thing fits together. And certainly we would advocate that businesses look at the value of their business in the context of a future world and try to understand whether they're fundamentally at risk or uh, see opportunity, and then decide accordingly. Now, the really exciting thing, I think, here is that um, even in the worst uh, affected sectors, if you perform well and you do the right thing and you make some positive moves, you're likely to come out on top of the pile. And so from a competitive point of view, even though your sector might be disadvantaged, you're better off if you take a proactive stance. Perhaps more importantly, that allows you to understand what that means to be proactive. And in some cases, it'll be to collaborate. So you can collaborate to reduce costs or share costs. You can collaborate to bring together skills that you don't have but that the market requires. But at the end of the day, a business's first responsibility is to itself and to its own shareholders and owners and to its customers. And uh, no, there are some situations where absolutely the right thing to do is just to compete the hell out of the market. Okay, and you mentioned um, you mentioned customers and, and consumers there. They're kind of becoming more more involved in this kind of overall thing, especially now as the circular economy comes along. It's more, it's, you know, customers are always the end of the line, but now it's kind of encouraging them to to yeah. almost pull back in. And um, is there is there more businesses can do to to get their consumers involved in that kind of aspect? I think the businesses that you tend to hear of um, in climate change discussion tend to sadly be the same businesses over and over again. So you've got a very small number of high profile businesses that set out their stall to address the needs of a future consumer whilst transforming their own business. In most cases they can do that because it's the right thing to do. They've done the analysis, they understand the opportunity and the risk and they're far better off being proactive. I think the real challenge is to get the businesses who are not yet engaged to uh, see either risk or opportunity and act accordingly. And in many cases, that will mean reaching out to the consumer in a far more open way than they've done in the past. Um, I think consumers, uh, from all our research, really value businesses who take this seriously and reach out to them. They don't trust businesses who are closed, so being open to the consumer is important, even if your story isn't great. Engaging with the consumer is really important because you earn its trust. And that does allow you, as you quite rightly say, to move into business models where the consumer has a more active role to play. Okay, and I suppose just finally, um, we are at the Climate Innovation Summit, so it's only fair I, I get your views on, on innovation in, in general. Um, in regards to a business sphere, I imagine a lot of the, the kind of, they're not innovations anymore, they're kind of mentioning the low-hanging fruits like the LED lightings and, and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, for you personally, the innovations that are going to you know, help us in this transition to a low-carbon economy, 
what are the ones that kind of excite you and seem most feasible to become you know commercialized yeah I, I think there's a huge spectrum of innovation um, from things that are blue sky and really we're just creating options for the future where actually the challenge is to um, prove that the thing works and that it's low cost and scalable um, and then at the other extreme you've got things that are as you say relatively well proven LED lighting lighting heating solutions and so on where actually the challenge is much more around deployment and addressing behavioral challenges and actually getting things done so innovation covers the whole spectrum uh, and I think we're excited about pretty much all of them the ones I particularly like are the things that are almost there on energy efficiency but not quite um, and I think a lot of that will be tied up with the development of an uh, urbanised uh, world, the development of big cities, particularly in developing and fast-growing parts of the world, uh, and ensuring that those cities are taking advantage of the available technologies as they grow so massively. So that would be, I think, the energy efficiency challenge, is to ensure that energy efficiency is built into cities as they develop. At the other extreme, you've got some real fundamental long-term challenges that for which there isn't an answer today. Aviation is still a big question. Um, biofuels for aviation, almost everything that's being done today is going to be unacceptable in terms of land use, in terms of water stress, isn't scalable and is very expensive. So we're going to have to find something that's radically different in terms of aviation solutions for the future. You know, there are many things out there. We need to put a lot of money into a lot of options to come up with something. The one I would focus on is algae. I think uh, algae for biofuels is compelling um, in that it makes very little demand on land use. Uh, you can use pretty much any water, brackish or otherwise, uh, to create it. It actually sucks up CO2, and you can do it at scale. Um, but it's a big step forward. It hasn't happened yet. Okay, well, there you go. Algae is, is the one to look out for. Um, I'm... I've been forced to, to to eat it, I suppose, or drink it as part of like a nutrition powder. So it's nice to see it can uh, it can make the avi <laughs> aviation sector healthy as well. So, Tom, uh, again, thank you very much for your time. It's been a no, pleasure speaking to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Some real thought-provoking discussions there at the Climate Innovation Summit. Thanks for that, Matt. So uh, that brings us to an end of our interviews this week. Uh, but there is one last thing we wanted to bring you. So uh, George obviously isn't here to give us his sustainability success story of the week. It's easy for me to say. Um, yeah, we could have rang him maybe and get, got him on the phone maybe while he was on his sick bed, but I don't think he'd have appreciated that. But uh, yeah, Matt, you still are very much here in the room and I uh, don't think we could go through a full episode of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast without you wowing us with your green innovation of the week. Yeah, um, other than this time, it's green innovation of the year. Okay. Because, oh, you know, it is, it is Christmas, so... So it's an annual, an annual look back. Exactly. What better advice to give to sustainability professionals than an innovation they can purchase for their, their company? Although two of these are probably quite expensive. So, yeah, they're not going to be any under the Christmas trees anytime soon. Have you actually narrowed this down to one? Have you got a number on this list or is there any special commendation? I, I have, I have, yeah, some, you know... Highly commended. Yeah, that's the one. Highly, okay. co highly commended. So right, give, us your, give us your highly commended... <clears throat> first um i think the life straw is definitely worth a mention <laughs> i do remember this yeah. the, the nesquik analogy in, exactly it? yeah um in essence you stick a straw in some dirty water and it, it basically um eliminates 99.9999 i'm sure that's a recurring figure um percent of all kind of water-based pathogens and diseases mm. it, it's clean access like what clean water access to anywhere in the world to those who need it and this is a, a concept that's available for, you know, $20 per straw. And you can, you know, that, that straw can provide 1,000 litres of clean water Wow, per straw. Yeah, interesting. <clears throat> right. I think that's one of those examples of something so simple um, but so effective. And that's what kind of innovation ultimately can it's all about, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, so that one makes the list agree with that one. And also, um, slightly more expensive than the last straw is the Volvo uh, XC90 T8 Hybrid. I don't actually have a price for it. Um, okay. But um, they basically earlier this year launched a two-day trial whereby they put a load of um, peristaltic pumps and heat maps across busy highways uh, in the US and just kind of parked up. And as the as the traffic went over these heat maps, they were generating kinetic energy, which was then transferred and actually stored and powered the Volvo car. Oh. So it's, it's essentially stealing energy. So we talk about the sharing economy. Perhaps Volvo's acting as the Grinch in this case, and is stealing all this energy. But it's it's not. It, it's literally free energy that it's able to pick up off the roads. I think kinetic energy is something that 
personally fascinates me, mainly because I can't get my head around how it works. <laughs> yeah. You know, they do it with kind of 3G football pictures as well to power the lights and whatnot. So yeah. it is a fascinating concept. So is this you saying that, you know, this brand new Volvo car's out, you can't quite get your head around how it works. Are you sort of punting for them to send you a, a car to... to In essence, yeah. I think I think the best way for me to get my head around is, is for them to kind of send one down to the office yeah. and I'll, I'll, I'll drive it for... A, Three or four years and yeah, see, a good see Christmas how it present, it? Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if it fit under my tree. <laughs> but right. the winner, which definitely will not be fitting under any Christmas trees anytime soon, mainly because it's bigger than seven foot, okay. is the car eating bus in China. Okay. Um, it started very much as a design concept, but since we spoke about it on this podcast, it's actually been tested in oh. China in August. Success, successful, um, as far as the people involved are concerned. I'm sure they were going to say that regardless, but. Yeah. Um, Basically, the concept is it's this kind of tunnel on wheels whereby um, up to 1,400 people can sit on this huge bus that then has these kind of big sets of stilts with wheels. And what it essentially does do, if you're stuck in congestion, stuck in traffic, this bus drives over the traffic. Mm. It's in its own separate lane and it's like a moving tunnel, so the cars just pass underneath. They estimate it's going to save kind of... um, 800 tonnes of fuel and 2,400 tonnes of emissions annually. And, um, you know, it kind of adds to that thing about it improves public transport. Mm. It is kind of electric powered as well. So it is it is kind of built for the hypertrains and infrastructure for the future. And also, I think if a lot of people who are maybe in rush hour see this huge kind of bus passing over them, getting to where they want to go quickly, mm. it might encourage them to get on public transport. Yeah. There's all these statistics going around about cars just sit parked 95% of the time. Mm. If you can incentivize public That's transport true. That's like that. interesting potential yeah. out of it, yeah. And then that not only lowers emissions, it lowers the kind of manufacturing aspect of it all. So it, it's got real potential to take off yeah. um, depending on the success of these trials and how much they take it on. Yeah, I must admit, it sounded like a bit of a wacky idea when mm. we first introduced it in that podcast all that time ago. But uh, no, interesting to see they actually trialled it. And yeah, having had a look at it um, after that podcast episode, actually, it, it's, yeah, as you say, just covered it all off so well. So um, it's an innovation that um, might seem like it's a little bit kind of uh, blue sky mm. thinking, pie in the sky thinking, but uh, it's actually, you know, it's it's, it's really happening, uh, particularly in so pertinent, relevant in a country's so populated as, as mm-hmm. in China. Maybe see that in the UK sometime soon. Um, okay then, there you have it. So uh, that brings us to an end of this week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered and possibly uh, an end to the year for the show. Nope, I was waiting, waiting for Matt to some, someone to go, oh, but uh, not going to happen. <laughs> um, now, uh, it really does depend uh, whether or not this is the last episode of the year because George is uh, going to hopefully be back from his cookie-induced illness <laughs> Uh, tomorrow uh, if he is uh, we may well get one final show in of the year which we'll put out uh, next week or so but if not then I'm afraid this will be uh, the last one for 2016 so I'm unsure whether or not to say this but uh, in case we're not back before Christmas uh, then from the entire team at ED Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all um, we genuinely can't wait to get things going again in the new year so um, Matt have a great Christmas break uh, we've only got a couple of days left together in the office based on various holidays we've got to be taking um, you're just going to be heading home or um, heading home for Christmas time with the family but yeah. Edinburgh for New Year's which um, yeah. which will be a, a real hoot yeah that'll be really interesting yeah. what New Year's Eve New Year's Eve yeah New Year's Eve mm. so the um, I can't even pronounce it Hogmanay Hogmanay I know yeah. Um, yeah the street party down on Prince's Street so if any, any listeners are there you know Enjoy. I'll be um be wearing a, a nice fur coat, so you can't put me up. It's the same to be sourced, no doubt. But, uh. Uh, yeah, so uh, bear in mind, though, that we're back, I think, it's fallen on a bad time this year, Christmas has, and I think mm. we're back in the office on the second, maybe the third, third the Monday. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, probably see you looking bleary-eyed on the third. Uh, okay, uh, I was hoping at that point for you to maybe bring out a, a Christmas present or a card, but... Clearly not going to happen, so we have to just uh, leave it there, Matt. Anyway, uh, that's all from us. My presence is the present this week, I'm afraid. (laughs) So uh, it's uh, a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.